With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Miriam Miares, she didn't like Cuba either. And uh, she fled Cuba. And had she lived in China, she would have fled China. They're not trying to take over our farmland for guys. They're buying up uh, Smithfield hands. It's a horrendous attempt to act like Trump in Virginia's capital. On this episode of Pod Virginia, Virginia. Governor Glenn Youngkin. Made in Virginia cannot be a front for the Chinese Communist Party. The state of the Commonwealth. This is like some zombie policy out of the George Allen administration. We're joined by Senator Scott Surabell. He wants to tweak Democrats or punch at Democrats or make this partisan. Previewing the General Assembly session. Made in Virginia cannot be a front for the Chinese Communist Party. Bizarre. With Governor Glenn Youngkin. Send me that bill again and I promise you I will sign it. And Senator Scott Surabell. The federal government has failed to take action. The federal government is a calcified, frozen body which is incapable of making real policy anymore. On this episode of Pod Virginia. As many as favor that motion will say aye. Those opposed no. The motion is agreed to. Support for Pod Virginia comes from the Virginia Poverty Law Center, the League of Conservation Voters Education Fund, Dominion Energy, and Patreons who are listeners like you. I'm Michael Pope. I'm Tom Bowman. And this is Pod Virginia, where the state of our podcast is strong. The General Assembly is back in session this week, and Governor Glenn Youngkin laid out his agenda for the coming year. We'll be listening to parts of that speech and getting reaction from one of the leading Democrats in the Senate. He represents Southern Fairfax County, and he's returning to the podcast. Senator Scott Servell, thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you guys. All right. I want to start our conversation by talking about one of the weirdest moments of the speech. This has a lot of Democrats buzzing. Check out what the governor had to say about China. Well, the national security concerns and personal privacy implications of CCP technology are well known. I believe Virginians also should be wary of Chinese communist intrusion into Virginia's economy. We welcome and encourage economic cooperation with international companies. 
I've said before that I want made in America to mean made in Virginia. But let me be clear. Made in Virginia cannot be a front for the Chinese Communist Party. In addition, Virginians, not the CCP, should own the rich and vibrant agricultural lands God has blessed us with. That is why I'm asking this General Assembly to send me a bill to prohibit dangerous foreign entities tied to the CCP from purchasing Virginia's farmland. Wow. So this had a lot of people talking. Um, I, you know, I've been to a couple of these State of the Commonwealth address, Senator, and I don't recall a governor ever talking about foreign policy in general or China in particular. What did you make of this part of the speech? I heard that and I was really scratching my head. I... First, my first thought was, what does this have to do with his campaign for president? And my next, next thought was, I haven't heard anybody talking like this since maybe like the mid-1980s when I was in high school. I'm not really sure what he's talking about. I have some suspicion this has something to do with the fact that Chinese investors purchased Smithfield, I think about 15 years ago, and, and they've owned Smithfield and been investing heavily in hog farming because of the uh, Chinese demand for, for – uh, hog meat, but I don't know what he's talking about. It was very bizarre and seemed a little paranoid to me. Yeah, that's that's an interesting line from the governor here. Look, I'll say I'm glad that Virginia's governor, no matter who he or she is, is taking foreign policy into consideration. Uh, Virginia is, you know, foreign policy is the bedrock of Virginia's economy uh, one way or another. And it is important that uh, Richmond politicians understand the threat posed by foreign actors. Uh, Senator Serval, you mentioned Smithfield Ham, uh, owned by China recently, uh, of course, represented by McGuire Woods, which is all over his administration. So, you know, I'm not really sure what he's trying to get at. Wanting to block China from buying agricultural land, you know, okay. Um, but I wasn't really aware that that specifically was the problem. We're really talking about, you know, in, in the foreign policy circles uh, that it, with my foreign policy clients, we're a little bit more concerned about manufacturing. We're concerned about data intrusion uh, through apps like TikTok and, and whatnot. So I was just as confused by this as, as you were, Senator. Yeah, well, it's not just, well, it's not just data intrusion, but Virginia's number one export either still is or used to be microchips because we had a, a microchip. We still have the microchip facility. Uh, in in Manassas, where we make uh, the Micron facility, in Manassas, where we make microchips. There used to be a, another microchip facility in Henrico at Dominion Semiconductor, which closed down. And um, I know we're making a big push right now to bring microchip manufacturing back to America, so that we're not so exposed if the Chinese do something about Taiwan. And I've heard a lot of talk about that lately, especially with the Chips Act that Senator Warner was so critical in passing. But this is the first time I've ever heard anywhere, whether it's in a speech or online or in a blog or anywhere talking about, you know, some Chinese conspiracy to buy our farmland. That to me was a 
really odd thing to bring up, especially in the state of the Commonwealth Address. It's just not something I've heard anybody talk about as being a priority for state policy at all. So I, I was really scratching my head. Well, I'll be, I'll be, you know, Frank, it is happening nationwide. That is a concern uh, generally for the country of uh, China and, and Chinese entities buying up American real estate, farmland, etc. It is strange that it would make its way into a state of the Commonwealth address. All right. So another thing the governor talked about was something he campaigned on, which was getting rid of the grocery tax. But the way he did it actually prompted some murmurs uh, among some of the Democrats who were seated at the back of the House chamber. I want to play a little bit of the audio on the governor talking about getting rid of the grocery tax. I was so pleased to see my Democratic friends join us recently in celebrating the end of this regressive tax, something Virginians came together around during the campaign. That's definitely a clear sign that there is bipartisan momentum for more tax relief this session. So I think the, the language there that was causing some people to stir was that the Democrats joined him, right? Um, the What's the backstory here in terms of the Democrats trying to get rid of the grocery tax for quite a long time, right? Yeah, no, Governor Northam proposed that I think Senator Boisco had a bill that she introduced that got turned into the grocery tax repeal bill. But I mean, we've been talking about this for a while, but it, it wasn't his idea. And, uh, you know, some, some of us also had an issue with even doing it without backfilling the transportation revenue we lost. I mean, that that bill actually blew a $700 million hole in the, the state's six-year transportation plan, which, by the way, would have paid for the entire mixing bowl project. It's it's a massive um, hole that we blew in our revenue. And and from our perspective, we're not really done dealing with that problem. And the idea that that, that somehow indicates we're ready to cut taxes even more is complete nonsense. I couldn't believe he would connect the dots like that. But, you know, he has a habit of, of, of trying to, you know, build fake momentum by stringing things together that have nothing to do with each other. And the insistence on tax cuts is anxiety inducing for me. Uh, you know, since I started in Virginia politics as an intern in Delegate Scott Cervell's office, look, Virginia's never had a good budget year up until Ralph Northam took over. And we finally were able to dig ourselves out of some holes at, but that being said, we weren't dug out, right? So there's, it's not like we have a pot of money that nobody knows what to do with. There's a ton of things that just aren't funded in the budget that need funding. Education, right? So our, our, our state contribution to higher education is woefully diminished from what it was at its peak in 2006 or 2007. So there's a lot of money that needs to go around and, and also to save it as we head into another recession so or, or so it looks so it's really strange to want to start doing tax cuts as we know that sales are about to drop through the floor um, property values are about to drop through the floor incomes are are going to be stale there's no long-term efficacy for a plan like this it is only short term uh, a short-term sugar high that Glenn Youngkin's looking for and and look the reality is, on all, all of this talk about tax cuts, um, yeah, grocery tax was a Democratic plan. He joined the Democrats. Ralph Northam also championed the grocery tax repeal in his last year in office. So he he's he's in Candyland. I don't I don't know what he's talking about. Let, let me let me be a little more clear. 
I, I don't think Democrats have ever proposed a, a, a grocery tax cut where we didn't hold the transportation trust fund whole because that's a huge priority for Correct. Northern Virginia. And we, again, blew a $700 million hole in the transportation trust fund with the way the governor did it. Uh, I can tell you that this session, there is zero appetite in my caucus for tax cuts of any kind, zero appetite, especially with the special election results that just happened. I can tell you that. Uh, is this why Senator Luis Lucas said the budget can go to hell? I didn't hear her say that, but that, that sounds like her. She said it in a press conference. Okay. Well, I, I wasn't there and I didn't hear it, but I'll take your word for it. But that doesn't surprise me. And and, and Senator Lucas is the, you know, the, the depending on how the election goes, could be the chairman of the, or co-chairman of the finance committee. So she has a lot of sway over there. But in terms of what Thomas said, a lot of us questioned whether we even had the capacity to afford the tax cuts we did last session. We were in a 10% inflationary environment. Right now, we have a 17% vacancy rate in our state employees. We've never had a vacancy rate that high among state employees, and it's because state salaries and benefits are not keeping up with the private sector because we haven't given them enough raises. We have the same thing going on with teachers. We have the same thing going on with the cops. Our public sector employees all across the Commonwealth, state, local, all up and down, are quitting and moving on to other jobs because we don't have competitive salaries because we've given them 5% raises in a 10% inflationary environment and their salaries were low to begin with. So we have a lot of needs for investment. In terms of what Thomas just mentioned about higher ed, I don't think the high point was in 96. I think the high point was in 93. When I went to JMU in, in, from 1989 to 93, the state paid two-thirds of my, high, of my tuition. Today, the state only pays a third of tuition. And to, blow, to make up that hole, to get us back to where the state used to pay on tuition, it would take a billion dollars. And guess what? We just gave a billion dollars back to taxpayers last year in a refund. We could have restored our entire contribution to higher ed if we hadn't done the taxpayer refund last year. And instead, the governor keeps bringing up these sort of, you know, mid-1990s, late-1980s policies like, you know, tax cuts and we're overtaxed stuff, which in Virginia just makes no sense. I've never seen a single study that says Virginia's tax rates are anywhere close to the median in, in America. So Yunkin also talked about education policy, which is clearly one of the campaign issues that got him into office. And, you know, he feels like this is an issue he wants to return to because, you know, clearly it worked for him in the campaign. So this is part of his comments in his State of the Commonwealth address on public education. Every parent in Virginia is now acutely aware that years ago, the educational standards were systematically lowered. And sadly, those lowered expectations were met. Virginia's children bear the brunt of those misguided decisions. It's absolutely unacceptable by any standard and from any perspective. We must teach our kids to read. Yes, yeah, so this setup here is really interesting. Everybody knows that education standards were lowered. Uh, do you know that education standards were lowered? What do you make of the governor's comments here? You know, he's cracked the code. You know, um, our mission you know, for the last, you know, two decades has been the lower standards so our children learn less in schools. I'm glad he finally figured it out. Let's take that out of context and give it to Tucker Carlson. Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, <laughs> what, what he's talking about is that um, a lot of us on a bipartisan basis, I want to note, have been talking about taking our foot off the throat of our teachers and telling them how to teach. Because one of the reasons nobody wants to teach anymore is because we try to tell them how to teach everything. And I'll tell you, one of the best applause lines I've gotten when I've spoken to children from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade is they take too many SOL tests. And again, this is like some zombie policy out of the George Allen administration that we need to bring back, you know, more, more sort of standardized testing for our students. That's what he's really talking about. 
And it's it's bizarre to me that he's focused on all these zombie policies in the mid '90s. But that that's what that references. And I've I haven't met anybody that thinks that the way to 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 get our kids better educated is to reintroduce standardized testing that we just repealed like two or three or four or five years ago. We've been trying to get rid of these standardized tests and not impose more of them. Yeah, the governor's claim that public education's a failed system isn't only untrue, but it's also harmful because public education's been the backbone of our society for generations, and it's provided opportunities for you know millions of Virginians to succeed. Um, and education, by the way, isn't or at least shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's a fundamental right for all children. So the governor's statement that public education uh, is divisive really misrepresents our our shared goals of providing a high-quality education for every child in Virginia. You know, one thing that he keeps coming back to, and you hear this a lot from Republicans, is these NAEP scores, these national scores for the fourth-grade reading, the fourth-grade math, eighth-grade reading, the eighth-grade math, they were lower. These, these most recent scores were lower. And so Republicans say, well, that's proof positive that the standards were lowered. What do you make of that? Of course they were lower. They were lower across the entire country because we went through a pandemic and children weren't in schools and they weren't in the classroom and they weren't with their teachers. And it was a nationwide trend. This isn't something that's specific to Virginia. And instead of trying to point fingers and try and say this was the pandemic education thing was caused by Democrats, it's a nationwide problem for God's sakes. We ought to be talking about how are we going to deal with the learning loss how, and how are we going to do with it? How are we going to get kids caught up to where they should be so we don't have a generational problem? And if he was acting like a governor and not some partisan running for president, that's what he would be talking about in his speech instead of trying to point fingers. Yeah, the governor's proposal is not really about improving education. You know, spoiler alert. It, he, he's trying to cut funds for our schools, and that's not the way to go. Um, we should be investing in, in our schools, in the public education system. That's how we truly create a better future for the state and, and for our commonwealth. When you say he's trying to cut education, he wants to give raises to teachers. He spent a significant amount of time talking about raises for teachers. Right. He no, he didn't. He talked, no, he didn't. No, he talked about giving bonuses to teachers, which are not raises. Those are one-time expenditures, which he doesn't have to pay in his budget next year. And then he, he'll come back next year and ask us for the raise. I mean, you know, because he knows the revenues aren't going to be as good next year when we're in a recession. It's a gimmick. We, our teachers need a commitment that they're going to get big raises and they're going to be able to rely on that going forward so they can pay their mortgage, not some one-time bonus. All right. So another topic that the governor talked about was inflation, and he took an opportunity to take a swipe at President Biden. Here's what the governor had to say on that. A growing economy, growing jobs, growing population, and a growing workforce drive revenue, drive opportunity, and drive our quality of life. And with the silent thief of inflation let loose by President Biden. Inflation that's stealing Virginians' hard-earned money, growth is more important than ever. Okay, so shout out to my friend Victoria Ross, who responded to that on Twitter to say, I saw that film, The Silent Thief of Inflation. It was one of the floppiest films I ever saw. Um, what do you make of Yunkin blaming President Biden for inflation? You know, he did this throughout his speech. He would have this long windup where he would talk about one thing after another after another that we agreed about was a problem. And then he would ruin he would ruin the punchline by blaming it on Democrats. He did this like five times. And I wanted to stand up and clap for him. And I was like, oh, my God, you just ruined it with his Chesapeake Bay or this, other things. Inflation is high across the world. And the last time I checked, President Biden doesn't control the economy 
in Europe. He doesn't control the economy in Africa. He doesn't control the, Af the economy in, in Asia. This is a worldwide problem, for God's sakes. And I don't know why he feels compelled, other than the fact that he's running for president, to try to blame Democrats for everything going on. But it, 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 it drives me crazy because, you know, a lot of us would really like to work with this governor to try to find solutions to problems. But every time when he opens his mouth in public, he wants to sort of tweak Democrats or punch at Democrats or make this partisan. It makes it very difficult to try and have a conversation uh, because President Biden didn't cause inflation. A worldwide pandemic did. We had a first in a hundred year crisis that caused this problem. And we need politicians that are going to work together to try and solve it instead of point fingers. That's what's so maddening about things like that. Yeah, this is really keeping with that theme of Glenn Youngkin being stuck in yesteryear, Michael. Inflation's been at about 2.5% estimated for the last five months. So the headlines of 2022 early on are in the rearview mirror. And the reality is the governor's trying to distract from real issues facing Virginia families. He's blaming Biden for economic challenges. But the truth is, the COVID pandemic created unprecedented economic turmoil, exacerbated by Republicans who couldn't wear their goddamn mask. And it's going to take time for the country to recover. So our focus as Virginians, uh, Senator Servell's focus as a senator, it's, it's going to be on creating jobs, right? So like, it's, it's going to take time. We got to support small business and we got to help Virginians make ends meet. It's that simple. One of the pressing issues for Virginia is the fentanyl crisis, which, of course, is a bipartisan problem with bipartisan <laughs> solutions. Um, the governor had some interesting comments about a bill that Governor Northam had vetoed. He says he'll sign it. This is part of his speech on fentanyl. Two years ago, this body passed a bill to make the sale, manufacture, and distribution of drugs killing our children, our friends, and our neighbors a felony homicide. It was vetoed by the last governor, despite the fact it could have and would have saved countless lives. Send me that bill again, and I promise you I will sign it. Senator, what is the governor talking about here? Well... I've been in the legislature now about 14 years and over like, I think it was like a two, three, four year period, uh, Delgate Lingenfelter tried to pass a bill to make it a felony homicide to sell, gift, or um, manufacture drugs that ended up causing someone to die. Uh, and after Delgate Lingenfelter lost in 2017, I think, Delgate Hugo picked up the bill right before his uh failed re-election in 2019 and passed the bill through both chambers. And that was back when the Republicans controlled both chambers. It was vetoed by Governor Northam. And uh, uh, the governor vetoed it for reasons I agreed with. I mean, his veto was sustained, I think, by the House of Delegates. That didn't even get to the Senate. But, um, you know, the distribution of an opiate like that carries a penalty of five to 40 years already before you make a felony homicide. And, you know, I think a lot of people, at least on my side, I think there's bipartisan feeling about this is that, you know, the over-criminalization and the over-penalization of, of drugs has not done a whole lot to solve the problem. It, it creates a lot of nice brochures. And, you know, when you tell people, you know, hey, somebody that sold, you know, sold or gave drugs to somebody ought to, ought to get, you know, really punished harshly. 
Um, it, it makes for a nice brochure, but the reality of these situations are often way more complex and nuanced than that. Um, opiate addiction is a very messy thing, and um, our existing tools are are adequate. Like I said, if you can already get five, five to forty years, why do we need to pile onto that? I don't think adding some new felony homicide penalty is going to result in fewer people dealing or fewer people manufacturing. The the way you deter crime is in the certainty of getting caught and getting punished. It's not the quantum of punishment. It's just the certainty of getting caught and punished. And when it comes to opiates, you know, what we really, really need to be focused on is how to get people rehabilitated and, and, uh, and, and, and on with their lives because opiates is such a horrible, awful addiction that people have such a hard time breaking. The, the criminal justice system often is a very poor way of trying to resolve that problem. Yeah, this is a missed opportunity, of course, Michael, because this requires a holistic approach that includes access to treatment, recovery services, et cetera. And the governor's proposal is just overly simplistic and punitive. You know, it ignores the fact that addiction is a complex disease. Many individuals who use drugs struggle with underlying mental health issues. And uh, what we need in the year 2023 is an evidence-based approach that includes increasing access to treatment and recovery services, expanding harm reduction strategies, increasing education, prevention initiatives. So, you know, the governor's proposal might sound tough, but it really ignores the fact that simply punishing people who use, uh, who use or sell drugs does not solve any problems. It doesn't address the underlying reasons for why this is happening. And we should be able, you would hope, to work together to address that public health crisis. It's not partisan. Um, we need to provide that help, that support that um, for those not just struggling with addiction, but forced into an economic situation where selling drugs like fentanyl are their best option. Did you vote against this bill before, and what do you think its chances are this year? I was trying to look that up. I, I know I voted against it repeatedly when Delgate Lingenfelter carried it. I remember um, Senator, now Congressman Wexton, felt very strongly about it. In 2019, I think it passed unanimously out of the Senate. And I was trying to remember exactly what happened that caused that to happen. All right. So one last issue I want to talk about uh, before we wrap up, which is don't California, my Virginia, of all of the issues that came up in this speech, this was the loudest applause line that you heard from Republicans. This is the part of the speech where the governor says Virginia should write its own environmental policy and not follow the dictates of the Golden State. Virginia faces a mandate starting in 2024 that limits and eventually bans the buying of gas-powered cars and trucks. Unless we act, Virginia is hostage to the extreme policies of California. Common sense says that the law of Virginia should be written by elected leaders here in Virginia. So, Senator Starwell, there are two standards. There's the national standard and the California standard. You can either follow the national standard, you know, which is okay, or the California standard, which is way more strict. And that's why the Northam, the Democrats, wanted the California standard. Um, that's the logical argument. But then you get people saying this, don't California, my Virginia, which is a very strong message. And you can communicate that to people. How are you going to combat this argument, don't California, my Virginia? You know, the, the governor's demagoguing on this issue is just preposterous. You know, the, there's, I think it's 15 states now that have joined 
the California air standards because the federal government has failed to take action. The federal government is is a calcified, frozen body which is incapable of making real policy anymore. And and because of that, it's time for states to step up and take the lead on these issues. And California and a bunch of other states have done that, and we're joining with them. And the reason for that is because if you adopt these standards, it gets you better access to electric vehicles so you can get better quantity, better selection, and you know what? Lower prices because something like two out of three electric vehicles that are driven right now in Virginia are bought in places like Maryland because you can't get them in Virginia because we're not part of this compact right now. So we're not – the idea here was never to – have California dictate to us is to join a, a collaborative of 15 other states that are banding together to do something about air pollution, which, by the way, transportation is now the number one carbon emitting sector of the economy. And we have to start taking action. And if the federal government's not capable of doing it, the states need to step up. And that's exactly what we did. And we did it in a way that consumers could have choice and affordability. That's what it's all about. And the governor sort of trying to turn this into some political uh, punching bag is is just really it's it's really unfortunate, and it just it sort of underscores sort of how political he's become on 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 just every single little tiny issue. And you would think we could find something to work together; it'd be climate change, but no, he wants to just demagogue this to death. Yeah, Michael, it was bizarre to me to hear a Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, simp for the federal government led by Joe Biden. Why? is a Republican governor saying that we should go with federal government regulations and standards. Um, You know, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is we as Virginians are presently getting to be in the lead and and, and getting to take advantage in a business and market environment of California being able to lead the way in these uh, uh, electric car standards. And and we're going to benefit from that. So Dominion Energy... Uh, a bunch of the Southeast regional electric utilities have partnered with GM, General Motors, to install uh, electric car chargers every 100 miles on, on interstates in the region. Um, and that's just, of course, a first step. And this is all harmonious in uh, stepping toward the future, right? So I've said this in previous podcasts, but when you hear things like this from Glenn Youngkin, the thing you need to keep in mind is that his major donors came from the American Petroleum Institute, Exxon Mobil, and and coal companies. So dirty, dirty fossil fuel companies. And contrast that with uh, Dominion Energy Renewable Utilities endorsing uh, Terry McAuliffe, right? So this was really a fight against American Petroleum Institute and renewable energy. And unfortunately, American Petroleum Institute won. And so Glenn Youngkin's got bills to pay, right? He's got to pay back his big donors uh, for API and ExxonMobil. And by the way, none of them really create a ton, of, a, a substantial amount of jobs in Virginia, but he's going to do it anyway. Truth and, and economics be damned. The reality is Virginians are far, far better off by getting to lead the pack in the United States, then going right back to the middle or the bottom of the pack where we were without adopting these California standards. So, you know, that veiled swipe that he's got sacrifices Virginia's ability to lead on reducing emissions. And and we shouldn't settle for meeting minimum standards. That's, that's bullshit. We should strive for excellence. We should exceed 
them and ensure a healthier environment, a better future for all Virginians. Okay, well, that's a great place to leave it. Senator Scott Suravel of Eastern Fairfax County, thanks for joining us on Pod Virginia. Always good to be with you guys. Pod Virginia is a production of Jackleg Media. Our producer is Arian Ballou, and our advertising sales manager is David O'Connell. Find us on Facebook or Twitter, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and hey, write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. Make sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of Pod Virginia. This podcast is so jack-legged. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.